Hello, welcome everyone to September's second bonus episode. And since it's the last day of September, we're about to go into October. I feel like we should kick it off with something that's just a little bit spooky. And so today we're going to be speaking with one of my coworkers. His name is Vincent, and he works at the Calvert Marine Museum as an educator, much like myself. Except he has the day hobby of going through really, really old documents and a lot of them. So what Vincent's going to talk to us today about is a few stories that he's read throughout his research. He was doing a lot of work researching land deeds in Calvert County, which is where our museum is in Maryland. And he basically went through I mean, thousands and thousands and thousands of pages of documents of these land deeds. And in his other spare time, he also reads a lot of Maryland folklore. So what this episode is, is kind of a bonus episode. So some extra content that's not necessarily museum with two specific artifacts, but history nonetheless. And he's going to be talking about some of the amazing folklore stories that he has, and then kind of talking us through how he was able to find factual evidence of some of the stories through his research, through his deed work. So it's kind of this fun combination of you know, folklore, meeting its realization in history. And it's a lot of fun. I really enjoyed doing this episode. And I think that you guys are going to like it. So, so if you do, if you like this kind of bonus content, consider come November, I'm going to have the Patreon all set up and ready to roll out with uh, fun episodes like this, these bonus episodes. So here's a little taste and I hope that you guys enjoy it. If you want to see pictures or episode links or anything like that, you can always visit www.curatorschoicepodcast.com and you can check it out on Facebook and on Instagram. So let's go ahead and get started and hear a little bit from Vincent. All right, so I started at the Calvert Marine Museum in May of 2019. Okay, so you've been there for a few years now. Mm-hmm. And through that, are you got a grant to study old stuff that you already do anyways. No, that was for a whole different museum. Oh! That's how I got into deed research. So basically you're a trader. You switched museums. I didn't switch museums. I worked multiple jobs. Oh, okay. I'm a millennial. <laughs> That's what we all do. <laughs> <laughs> so what was what was the project for that? So um, when I graduated high school, I got a part-time job at a local museum in North Beach. And it's called the Bayside History Museum. And they just held the area of the little resort towns because nobody was doing that. Um, and through them, I learned how to do archival research and deed research, land titles. I mean, you name it, that's what I was learning how to do. And we always got people that would come in and say, oh, I had an aunt so-and-so who lived here in like 1964. Where did she live? Wow. And it's like, okay, cool, <laughs> right? Yeah. Do you know how many thousands of people probably lived here? So there was always that question of, you know, can we help them? The answer is yes. Through a lot of extra work. Right. But there's like that asterisk at the end. It's like, it'll take a while to get through it. So if you look at land records, um, they're all available online. You just have to make an account with the state. It's free. So can't beat that, right? Mm -hmm. Um, So I made an account like six years ago so I could start learning how to do this and working through it. So I've learned all the idiosyncrasies and how it's, you know, works, doesn't work. 
And I had a wonderful lady, um, her name was Susie. She taught me how to do this. Um, she'd been doing it for like 40 years. So it was like great learning from somebody who knew what they were doing. Um, and so in order to look at the oldest deeds, they are not inventoried. You can't search them by name. So if you have like a property, like a person's name, you can't search past 1968. So why is that? Um, they did they so just didn't have the records or they hadn't digitized the records? What I think happened is they got a grant to digitize the records. So they went through and they scanned every single page for all of this stuff. And then it's all digitized so you can look at it online from your home computer. You don't need it to go into a courthouse or something. And... I would assume that they got another grant and they had somebody go back and inventory it up to a certain year and then they ran out of money. And then it just got cut off at like 1968 arbitrarily because there's no real reason it should end at that date. It just, just kind of did. So I feel like they just haven't appropriated money to go back further. And I'm not sure about other counties because I've only focused on this one, Calvert. Um, but we're a small county. We're actually the second smallest county in the state. So that makes it easy enough because there really wasn't much going on here for a couple hundred years. Um, so in order to find those earlier deeds, um, I found the land record from when the company who established the town, who laid out the plats, who did everything, bought it from the farmer. And so I knew you couldn't sell any lots before then because it just doesn't exist. So you start from that date and I started reading page by page by page all of these books. Um, I started November 1st of last year, and I ended about three weeks ago, just because school's starting and I had other stuff going on. I read 75,000 pages and created 6,168 abstracts of deeds. And that was only up until 1953. So there's another 15 years and another 100 books that I'd have to read through in order to even get to where you can start searching by name. Oh my gosh. And so I don't know when that'll happen because you know, grad school and all that's coming up, but it's a start. So you made these abstracts and mm -hmm. basically now you kind of have a searchable mm -hmm. form that you can look for the name. So if Susie wanted that name, she could just look in and these mm -hmm. are all online, I'm guessing? It's going to be online. So I made a bunch of Word documents. Um, it ended up being over 700 pages like of Word documents of abstracts because I pulled out the date that the deed was made, its reference number. So it has the clerk of the circuit court's initials, the book number and the page number. So with that, you can find it on your own. Um, who bought the property, who sold the property, the description of the property, and then how much money, if that's you know any kind of detail in there. So it's literally everything you would need if you wanted to look through and find information. And this whole thing is all on the different deeds that were in this county mm -hmm. between that time period. Yep. Wow. It's, I mean, it sounds like there was a lot of business transactions happening and people were selling off property like crazy. Well, what happens um, is a lot of these were big farms, you know, we were talking 300, 400 acre farms. And once you start getting into the early 1900s, the families want to move to the cities. Um, they don't want to farm tobacco anymore, you know, because tobacco depletes the soils. It kills the soil. So after a while, you can't grow anything. And so what they would do is they'd sell it to a developer, and the developer would subdivide it. And then that's when you start getting even more Oh, because they'd be like into smaller properties for homes. Exactly. Mm -hmm. um, and so 
you know, you have these people. There's um, actually, it's really fascinating. Late 1800s, there's like a resort movement in the country because cities are terrible. They're hot, they're smelly, they have garbage. I mean, Disease. you can read about all the terrible things in cities. So Washington, D.C. is built in the swamp. It is built in a swamp. They literally so it just is, built in the swamp. Yep. And then built on top of it. Right. So Washington, D.C. in the late 1800s is not a place you want to hang out in the summer, especially with no air conditioning. I mean, that wasn't invented until the 1920s. So miserable. So a lot of like the you know richer folks or government folks wanted someplace outside. Um, Ocean City didn't really exist as a resort to go to unless you really had money because you had to take a train to Annapolis a steamboat across the bay, and then another train over to the eastern shore, and then you had to take a sailboat to Ocean City because it's on an island. And for reference for people who might not know exactly what we're talking about, we're talking about getting from Washington, D.C., which is north of here, down to Maryland, which is where we are now. And Ocean City now, I haven't been there myself, but I hear literally everyone talking about going to Ocean City for bachelorette parties Mm -hmm. and for vacations. So even still today, it is like the hot spot of many, but one of the main hotspots in Maryland for people to go for a vacation. And it's a day trip. It takes two and a half hours to drive there from here. So instead of literally a whole day of travel, now it's two and a half hours. That's why everybody goes there. But back you know, then, you couldn't always take off that amount of time. So developers would come along the different parts of the shoreline and buy out farmers who were like, yeah, I'm done. My my ground is no good anymore because I completely depleted the soil. Exactly. What's crop rotation? Right, yeah. (laughs) What? Weird. So they would sell to these developers and they would just create these seaside, you know, seaside resorts. Um, And then they would advertise in papers, hey, come down and buy a lot for like $300 if it's waterfront, $100 cheap, you know. The prices fluctuate. But there's a lot of big dreams, and there was a lot of these little towns all over the place. I mean, Anne Arundel County had like 60 of them. Um, Yeah, it's wild. So Calvert, as far as I know, nobody's ever researched that part of its history. Um, And it's just because I don't know if there's no interest or people just don't want to do that kind of legwork. I mean, I feel like it also has something to do with people not wanting to read through over 10,000 pages just for uh, fun. Yeah, that's not yeah. everyone is as big a nerd as you. And and that's why I wanted to do this because I knew nobody else would want to. I mean, if you just want to know, hey, where's my aunt's house? You're not going to sit there and read through all the deed books to try and find her name. Nobody's got the time, and then nobody wants to. That's a lot of work. So it's just it was something interesting to do, and it's definitely because I'm going into historic preservation. It's something I needed to learn. And it's definitely giving me a good leg up because now I really understand how it works. And you have a cool project underneath your belt that you can reference. Be like, hey, look at how great I did. And one of the fun things that's aside is as I was going through and I was making these abstracts, I kept a list of all the interesting things that I would come across in the deed books. So like nobody thinks about it, but they had ice ponds because that's where you would carve your ice out in the winter and you would store it in an ice house for the summertime because it didn't have refrigeration. And you couldn't get ice from like the city because it would melt by the time you even got to your house. So I, would, I made note of that. Any of the kinds of manufacturing, the blacksmith shops, um, different stores, just stuff that doesn't exist anymore. Mills, you know, you used to take your flour and your grain, you know, your grain down to get flour out of the mill. So I took note of where it mentioned those in the records. Different companies, um, canneries, because the seafood industry used to be huge here. Shipyards, you know, because none of those exist anymore. So I just kept notes 
of every of those little idiosyncrasies, the little fun facts on the side, just so I could come back later and reference it. And sometimes really cool names. So like one of the names I came across was Coffin Bottom Ravine. A, was a person's name? No. But it's literally just a geographic feature called Coffin Bottom. It sounds dark. Yeah. I have no idea what the story is there. <laughs> Maybe there's some kind of record somewhere and I can figure it out later. But I made note of it because it sounds interesting. Yeah. Well, and that works out perfect because that's actually what you brought for that's, us today is kind of just a few of these really wacky stories that you found out. And what's perfect is some of them even relate back to some of the items that we have at Calvary Marine Museum, which is where mm-hmm. we both work. Right. So what do you got? So I have a couple of stories. Um, and they're not like all the most interesting because all of the stories are interesting. I mean, I've, I've made a list of... 60 or 70 legends of Southern Maryland. And it's just ones from all these different books that I read, because that's what I do for fun, as I collect folklore books, especially Maryland, because I grew up here, so it's easy enough, right? And I just picked a couple that I thought were interesting, and they're all Southern Maryland-related and mostly Calvert-related. Although, I listened to your podcast, and I heard the Mud House, so I had to bring a ghost story I found about the Mud House. Oh, that's cool. Just because it's a good follow-up. You know, a little flavor to the stories. Um, so I brought four, or I guess four or five different stories here. So one's about the Mud House. Uh, one is about Drum Point Lighthouse. There's a couple of different things I came across in like archives and stuff. It just kind of poked out, you know, amidst the, what was it like living on a lighthouse? You know, what were your duties and whatever? It's like, wait, what were the weird things that happened? And then the guy's like, oh yeah, this. And then just never came back to it. And it's like, how can you just drop that? <laughs> More details, more details. Right. Um, then there's a story associated with Calvert called The Devil's Woodyard. And when you read the story, it's um, published in a really large volume. Um, it just, it's kind of there. It's like somewhere in the woods in Calvert County. And if you've ever been to Calvert County, it, there's just trees everywhere. So it's mm-hmm. like, what does that mean? <laughs> somewhere, right? And then the Steamboat St. Mary's, which we have artifacts from in the Calvert Marine Museum. And one of the artifacts is there because the steamboat actually burned to a crisp. And the artifacts fell in the water and somebody recovered it later and then donated it to the museum. Oh, that's perfect. Oh, so, just all ties in, right? So can we, let's start, can we start with the Mudhouse one? Yes, we can start with that one if you'd like. So the ghost story associated with the Samuel Mudhouse, you can go online and find you know, like rumors and like, oh, there's footsteps. There's the usual ghostly haunting kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. And that's cool and all. Um, But I actually came across a a ghost story about the mud house that wasn't specifically about the house itself. It was about his granddaughter. So his granddaughter is Louise Mud Earhart. And she had vague recollections about him. You know, there's a family portrait of him. So she knows what he looks like. And um, in the 1960s, um, she was living in La Plata, so his home's in Waldorf, so it's not too far by. Um, and her brother was actually still farming the property. You know, he wasn't living in the house, um, but you could still make money off the land, so he was putzing around. Um, and sometime beginning in the early 1960s, she actually started noticing that there was a man who was stalking her. 
She would see him running on her property, and when she went to go look for him, nowhere. And, and this was in La Plata? And this was in La Plata at her house, not the okay. mud house. It was at her own personal house. Okay. Um, there would be knocks at the door, and she would open it, and there would be nobody there. And it finally culminated into the man getting into her house, and she actually ran into him. So I can't even imagine like how... Like ran into him, physically ran into him? Yes, like he came right by her, and she just like jumped out of her... I would jump out of my skin if that happened, right? Yeah. So she got her dog and searched the entire house. He was nowhere to be found. And it was the first time she really got a good look at him. So as she was thinking it over, she realized it looked exactly like her grandfather. He had come back to visit her. And she speculated that it was because the family home was deteriorating, it was falling to pieces. And so she started to restore it. You know, she got, you know, people to come in to do, you know, fix up the kitchen, to fix up the walls, make sure it wasn't falling down. She said the more work that she did, the less he visited. But when she would slack off, grandfather would come around to say, hey, you know, we're supposed to be doing this, you know, taking care of the property. And so that's what basically saved the mud house is there's so many ruins of farmhouses in Southern Maryland. You know, so many homes that kind of just collapse in on themselves. People just leave to the elements. But the mud house, as you've seen, is beautifully restored. Mm-hmm. You know, it's a lovely little museum. And it's all because of Dr. Mud's granddaughter and his Seeing visits him. and, you know, encouraging her to save a piece of family history. Well, really, nation's history. I mean, honestly, yes. You know, like... It's even bigger than just her. So where did you find this story? So this story, it's in a fun little book. It's called Ghosts and Haunted Houses of Maryland. It's written by a lady named Trish Gallagher. It was published in 1988. So it's 40-ish years old. And she went around and did she interview the granddaughter? That's what it sounds like. Um, The way she writes these stories is more of like a personal, like just this is how the story goes. And it doesn't say she interviewed, but I can't imagine how she got the story out of her without talking to her in person. Mm Because, I mean, you don't really just go around sharing, oh, yeah, I saw a ghost, and that's why I decided to save the house. You know, some people don't (laughs) aren't really that receptive to a story like that. Yes. But, you know, obviously she felt comfortable with uh, Miss Gallagher and told her about all these, you know, these sightings and how she wanted to save the house. Um, So it's really, it's a fun little volume, and it has hand-drawn illustrations in it. Oh, wow. And so it's it's just fun with a ghost book, you know. And it's got a great cover on it. Oh, it does? (laughs) Oh, that's so neat. What a cool tie-in, too. You know, what I'm really finding with this podcast and, like, speaking with a lot of different people, even all over up and down the coast, mm-hmm. and, I mean, even, you know, I've done some in other in other states, but it's so crazy how intertwined history is. I mean, I'm like, how much everything mixes together in weird places that I wouldn't imagine. And hopefully the listeners are catching that, too, because, I mean, it's really, really cool how things just randomly pop up and you, you see something. So, mm-hmm. all right, what's our next story? All right, so I think the next one we should do um, Drum Point Lighthouse because it's at the museum we work at, right? Mm-hmm. And what's funny is when I first started working at the museum, like I'd read these ghost stories. I'd sort of, they're in the back of my mind, but nobody at the museum admitted anything. They're like, nope, it's not haunted. And in all the millions of times I've been in the lighthouse, I've never experienced a thing. I've never seen anything out of place. I've never heard footsteps. I've never seen anything. I go up, open the lighthouse, close it at the end of the day, come the next morning, nothing. So I don't know how true these are. Maybe it's people's imaginations wishing the stories on. 
But I did find a couple of interesting things, you know, while reading different folklore books and doing research. Um, so I was actually looking through the archives at the Calvert Marine Museum for information on oystering. Um, and so this was a completely different topic, but I came across um, the papers of a lady named Paula Johnson, who went out and talked to all these different watermen in the 1980s to record their stories, you know, because they were a dying breed even back then. And so it was really neat to hear these guys, you know, firsthand accounts. Well, slipped in among these papers was an interview with a guy named John Hansen. And he was a keeper at Drum Point Lighthouse uh, for about 18 months um, when it was turned over to the Coast Guard to the late 1950s. Um, and she asked him the standard question about, you know, what was it like to work on a lighthouse? You know, did you live there and this? And then all of a sudden, in like one paragraph, it's like, was there anything strange that happened? He goes, you know, when I first got there, um, the keeper that was in charge, his name was Dawson, told me that one of the other keepers, you know, previously had been found dead under the lighthouse. And they never figured it out. But he was just kind of floating there, half in, half out of the water. And then there's nothing else about it. And it's like no follow-up of like, yeah, this was true or this is just a story. Which I thought was hilarious because it's like, I can only imagine how this guy was. He was a Norwegian immigrant. He was an immigrant to this country, joined the Coast Guard, and was a lighthouse keeper here. So I can imagine a gruff Norwegian waterman just like, oh, yeah. Right, they found a, a dead guy yeah, down there. <laughs> you know, a dead guy, right? Um, but one of the things that um, his supervisor, so Keeper Dawson, had told him was there's a noise you might hear every now and then. I've heard it when I was on the lighthouse, and you'll probably hear it too. And Hansen said, sure, whatever. Um, and he was left at the lighthouse um, for about a week. So about four to five days into his stay when he was there by himself, he heard something that sounded like scraping or rustling, just a really odd noise. And so he said he searched the entire lighthouse all the way up to the lantern room, down below to storage, but he could never figure out where the sound came from. And eventually it kind of died off. And then about four to five days later, it started up again. So he'd hear the sound off and on during his tenure there. And he goes, I never figured out what it was, you know, but I figured it was a sound, so it couldn't hurt me. He just kept doing what he was doing because it was probably just the wind blowing in a funny direction. And that's the only thing it says in the interview. No follow-up, no speculation. No, like, oh, I was terrified out of my mind. It was just, eh, it's just a noise and it was part of my job. So whatever. It's amazing, right? Yeah. Just a whole different mindset back then. Yeah. Well, and I think too, like nowadays, I mean, that's even myself, like I, I'm, I'm very, um, Reluctant. Reluctant, thank you. I'm very reluctant to believe in a lot of these stories. Right. But I love hearing about them just because they're so fun. But I kind of also think back then it probably was something that you didn't really want to be associated with and mm. you didn't want to really talk about because that was a little bit of a, a uh, an off-topic taboo kind of thing. So it kind of makes sense that they were like, you know, just, oh, yeah, there was some noise. Who knows what it was? Oh, it was a dead guy. Yeah, and we don't want to talk about spiritual spirits or, you know, ghosts or anything. Right. But nowadays, we're like, yes, tell me. Right. You know, or at least I am. <laughs> I feel like, you know, ghost stories are much more, like, appreciated now. You know, you're not seen as a crazy person because people enjoy hearing them. You know, they like that little goosebumps on their arms. Mm -hmm. the Even if you believe it or not, it can right. still be just fun to kind of hear the stories. Right. I think. And so... In one of the other books that I was reading, there's story um, stories about the Drum Point Lighthouse. Um, so there's a large book. It's called The Big Book of Maryland Ghost Stories. And it's a big book. It's written by a guy named Ed Okinowitz. And he is a folklorist from the Eastern Shore. And he's written dozens, dozens of books. He's an excellent writer. 
Um, and he wrote about interviewing a few of the employees at the Marine Museum. Um, so this would have been like late 2000s. And they said that objects would move. So like the keeper's hat would be on the table in the morning when it was supposed to be in the bedroom. The drawers would be open. You know, doors would swing open when they were closed the night before. And the burglar alarm was never tripped. There is a burglar alarm in there, so you can't break into the Drum Point Lighthouse. But it would never go off, and these objects would move all over the place inside. Um, occasionally, people would hear footsteps on the staircase. Um, and there's even been reports of a young-looking, brunette-haired woman at the very top where the lantern room is, looking out off the railing. And there's no idea who she is. Like, nobody even speculates, oh, this is the keeper's wife from whenever. It's just, there's a lady up there, she's looking off the lighthouse. I've never seen her. I think it'd be kind of cool, but I mean, I can't attest to any of these ghost stories. But older employees apparently experienced some things in the lighthouse. Yeah, so this next story uh, is, it's a really fascinating mix of folklore and research. It's, it's weird how all the worlds kind of combine. There's just these little elements that we don't see that bind it together and all of a sudden it just snaps and you see it and you're like, oh my gosh, how did this happen? Um, so this next story is called The Devil's Woodyard. And it was kind of a, like a favorite of mine just after I first read it because it's, so, it's kind of goofy, but it's also fun at the same time, right? Um, so with folklore, you have a story from like an area, right? And I'm sure that when it first starts, there's lots of details. It's chock full of names and, de you know, where did it take place and, you know, what year and all that. But as you tell a story, you know, you kind of lose elements. You know, people change it up to make it scarier or they forget something. And there's no telling how old this story is. There's no date associated with it. It's, but we can assume probably in the 1800s in Calvert County. In 1800s, Calvert County is like backwater. It is, it's like 1700s, like rest of U.S. kind of. So it's very rural. So just imagine lots of farms. There's huge sections that were cleared out, you know, so you could actually just stand and look for miles up ahead because it's all farm fields. And you maybe would have had trees around the edges to mark borders, um, maybe in the ravines on the sides, you know, where you couldn't really log or farm. So there's no point in cutting it. So this story um, comes out of Calvert County, and it's in the uh, big book, of Maryland ghost stories. And it's about this place, the Devil's Woodyard. And Okanowitz does the best description of it, right? So supposedly the devil would meet with covens of witches on Friday nights under a full moon. So it's you know only a few times a year and on Halloween night because everything's Halloween night, I right? I mean, all hell's even has to be done then. And he must have clones because he's like everywhere on Halloween night, you know? There must be like millions of devils just kind of running around meeting with all these witches. And so they would, I like the description in this book, it says the band of unearthly revelers would mix potions and cast spells, call out curses, and pay tribute to their fire-breathing red-eyed master. And so, you know, you can just imagine these dark woods and, you know, there's maybe a bonfire in the distance. You can see this little glowing light and witches just dancing around with goblins and all the other devil's minions. And they're just bringing hell to earth, basically. But only on Friday nights, you know, at midnight under a full moon. I mean, they probably have day jobs. <laughs> right, yeah, you know, they're doing something else, right? You know, they're probably seamstressed up the road or something. <laughs> so one night, a local pastor 
told his friends and family that you know he was going to drive out these spirits. You know, he didn't like that the devil was so close to home. So he declared, I'm going to go under these woods and clear them out. And he disappears into the woods. A short while later, they hear a piercing scream in the night. And what do you do when you hear a piercing scream at night in the 1800s? You run home. You don't have flashlights. You're running home. So they sent out search parties to look for him, but never found a trace of him. And afterwards, people just avoided the area. You know, there were stories about travelers who were from out of county who they would find wagons, you know, supposing that they got dragged into the woods and sacrificed you know, to the Lord of Darkness. And it's like, wow, that's terrifying. I mean, especially if you, just, you know, back then, I mean, that stuff was very much so a part of everyday life. It wasn't folklore. It was considered truth. Right. And, you know, there's no doubt in my mind that people probably did disappear because you're talking about dirt roads and forests in, you know, very less traveled you know, places than they are now. I mean, today we just have cars zipping around everywhere. Um, but back then, you know, you're traveling at a slow pace. You're not running. You're just plodding along trying to get somewhere. So, you know, just imagine a wagon tipping over in the woods down a ravine and nobody ever finds you because it's heavy brush. And it probably happened all the time. Who knows? But these are the stories associated with the history of Calvert County. And I always just thought that was kind of a neat thing to, to think about as I was, you know, learning more about Calvert's history. And related to this deed research earlier, right, this is where research brings folklore to life. You know, it brings these elements out of the darkness. So as I was reading through the deed books, I was, you know, keeping notes of the interesting things that I would come across. And back in the 1800s and 1700s, you named your properties. You know, you gave them nicknames. So there's like Letchworth's Chance, which is up by Plum Point. Um, you have Rowsby Hall, which is down here in Solomon. It's just creative, fun names. And that was so you could tell each piece of property from the others. You know, you go, you're like, oh, you go down to you know, Addison's Addition, take a right and go this way. It just helped to distinguish these places. Um, so every now and then I'd come across the names of these old plantations. I just take note, you know, so I can do, go back and look at it later. Um, well, I came across a deed that was written on August 21st, 1823. And it's from a lady named Ann Grover. Um, she sold about 80-ish acres to a man named Isaac Smith. And it was two parcels of properties. One was called Rocky Point. I was like, all right, so it's got rocks along the shoreline somewhere, right? But then, as I'm reading, it literally says in this deed, the Devil's Woodyard. It was and a real I, place. <laughs> I about fell out of my chair. <laughs> I was like, I know this legend, and I'm looking at a deed book. It's in the county courthouse of records, the state of Maryland. This is, it's proof that this area existed. The Devil's Woodyard was a real place. It says so here in 1832. And what's even more remarkable about that story is that the courthouse here in Calvert County burned in 1882. All of the land records from before that time were turned to ash. So the fact that somebody had a deed and took it into the courthouse to get it recorded later on, itself is a miracle. But the fact that one that says Devil's Woodyard was saved and brought to the courthouse and recorded so that I could see it here in 2021 just kind of blows my mind. You know, this bit of folklore is brought to life. It's right here. It's real. It was a real place. By pure luck. By pure luck. Yeah, by pure happenstance. And it's all these little fibers coming together to make it possible. But what's... 
What's even funnier about this story, right, is as I'm going through, so Rocky Point is still the name of that area. It says Rocky Point Branch is the little creek that runs through, and it's Rocky Point is that area, right? So as I'm going through later deeds, I came, I'm in the, like the 1930s-ish, and I come across this deed from um, a gentleman selling his property to the Young Men's Christian Association of Annapolis. And what piece of property are they buying but the land next to Rocky Point, the Devil's Woodyard, a YMCA camp in the Devil's Woodyard in the 1930s. Where else would you put a YMCA camp, but right. if not in the Devil's Woodyard? Right, in a hexed forest, right? You need some kind of cursed land to put your, your scout camp in, right? So they were there for about 20-ish years, and they sold the property to a guy named Louis Goldstein. Um, and he sold the property to the Boy Scouts. So now there is a Boy Scout camp in the Devil's Woodyard. And to make it even better, they were only there for about five years. They sold it to the Girl Scouts. So the Girl Scouts had a cursed campground in Calvert County. It fits in with all these nice stories about haunted, cursed campgrounds. And and how perfect, because every camp that I've ever been to, there was the legend of the woods near the campground, right? right. And so, you know, you got to think that those are like all fireside stories or whatever. But I can only imagine, well, now I'm kind of like smiling and laughing about how they probably told those same exact stories at these campgrounds, little knowing that this was the cursed, you know, hexed, you know, witch haven of the Devil's Woodyard. So all their stories had some basis in fact, and they didn't even know it. Yeah, that's <laughs> awesome. And it's it's fun. You know, it, to me, that kind of more humanizes the story because you can pinpoint it to a place. It's no longer just, oh, yeah, my grandpa made up this story about you know, the haunted woods. It's people in the 1800s. I mean, it, who knows how old that property was. It could have been even from the 1700s called the Devil's Woodyard. Mm -hmm. But we do have a deed that says 1832 and it says Devil's Woodyard. So it at least existed then. Yes. Right. And it survived all the way to 2021. And now all these other people are hearing about it. And, you know, maybe it'll inspire them to think about the legends in their areas and maybe do a little research to humanize it, to bring it to light. So the last story I have for you is about the steamboat St. Mary's. So... In the Chesapeake region, um, we actually had one of the first commercial steamboats in the entire world, 1813, and it was called the Chesapeake. Because <laughs> why not? Right? So creative. <laughs> but, you know, you got to think, right, the War of 1812 is going on. So the British are going up and down the coast, burning plantations and towns. And this guy goes, you know what? I'm going to build a steamboat and start my own steamboat line. In the middle of all this chaos going on, right? I mean, Washington, D.C. gets burned the very next year. Baltimore gets attacked that same year. So, like... He's just stopped in his own steamboat thing. Yeah, he's doing his own thing over here while everybody's shooting at each other on the other side. It's just hilarious, right? So, the Chesapeake, it's, it's huge, you know? The, and the best way to get around is by water. Because you, know, you have all these forests, you have no paved roads, the distances are huge. So if you travel by water, you know, it's, it's not too bad. Um, and we're lucky that there's so many like waterways that spread into the interior um, because there was hundreds, literally hundreds of wharves and piers and docks. So you could bring these steamboats up to them, unload, you know, whatever supplies that the people there ordered, take on, you know, livestock or, you know, truck vegetables and take it back to the cities. And that was a huge thing, you know, especially like in small towns like Solomon's. They had canneries. He had, you know, uh, oysters and fish and crabs. 
and you could take that fresh up to Baltimore, Washington, D.C., or Annapolis, you know, whichever, the bigger met- metropolises. And so you could have fresh seafood in Baltimore that was caught like the day before, which for the 1800s, I mean, that's pretty dang cool, right? <laughs> yeah. So steamboats have their own sort of mystique about them. Um, you read any steamboat history book, there's always like little stories associated. They all have their idiosyncrasies, their little fun things that they would do you know maybe this steamboat didn't like it when you went up to top speed so you don't have to sit at idle or you know it backed up funny or something right um, so there was a steamboat that was owned by the weems line and the weems line was one of the biggest you know steamboat companies in the entire country and of course they aim at st mary's because st mary's county is right there so it's perfect um, and it would make trips um, up and down the Patuxent River. So it hit all these little wharves and docks, you know, dropping off things, dropping off people too, you know, because that was a good way to travel. Mm-hmm. I mean, 25 cents sounds pretty great to me, but it was probably a little bit more expensive back then, you know, with inflation now and all that. <laughs> but I mean, I can only imagine how much of a fun ride it would be to go from Baltimore, you know, riding on the bay, you know, at a nice plotting pace and have open decks. And it must have been great. But the crew, on the St. Mary's at least, like to play tricks on each other. And it actually got them into the Baltimore Sun, which was a huge newspaper. You know, even back then it was a huge newspaper. So it's kind of funny that their antics were recorded that we can read today. Um, I actually found this story in a book instead of the newspapers. Um, and it's a book, it's called Maryland Legends. Fun, right? Um, by guys named uh, Trevor Blank and David Puglia. And they were doing newspaper research for something, right? And they came across this article where the St. Mary's actually stopped in Solomon's. So right where you know we're at today, where we work, you know, this steamboat decided to come in. So in the 1800s, Maryland, the Chesapeake Bay got really icy. You know, it used to have like mountains of ice, like icebergs, literally just floating down the bay. So in January of 1904, the St. Mary's is making its way back up to Baltimore. Um, but there's these ice flows everywhere. And so the captain tried to find different ports to pull into, but they were either blocked by ice or he just couldn't quite get it. So Drum Point Harbor is this huge open space of water, and ships have been like finding refuge there since the first colonists came to Maryland, so 1600s. So it's well known to all the mariners on the bay. And he decides to pull his ship into Drum Point Harbor and anchor and just wait out, you know, the night. So maybe we'll take it up in the morning. Well, there are a couple of sailors on the St. Mary's. It was three sailors, according to the story, um, decided that they were going to go, you know, have some fun in Solomon's. I mean, they had saloons, you know, they had bars, you know, places to go drink and maybe meet some lady friends. Um, and they decided to row over to Solomon's. Uh, two other officers on board the ship saw what they were doing, decided that they were going to mess with them. Because that's what you do on a steamboat in the 1900s with no TV. You mess with the crew. (laughs) (laughs) And they followed them at a distance, made sure they didn't notice. And the guys went up to, you know, go drink and have fun or whatever. There's no records of, like, you know, if they actually met anybody or, you know, how plastered they got. But they had fun time. And Solomon's, it's sort of like a mixed bag, right? It's a seaside little shipyard building place. It's very industrial, so it's a lot different than what it is today. Um, and back then, you had a lot of watermen who were transients. They would come in to work for a while, leave. A lot of workers would come in, work, leave. And when they would die, there was nobody to claim the bodies. 
And a lot of these guys just had the shirt on their back. So it's not like they had money for huge funerals or to get shipped off wherever. So they would end up just being buried somewhere along the waterfront. There's a little island in the harbor that they used to just bury people on that had no other place. And because there was no erosion control back then, you know, you'd have storms that would come in and occasionally unearth parts of these bodies. So you could find bones just all over the beach of people. I can only imagine how gross that was or just terrifying. Just be like, oh, hey, it's a hand. Um, and so Solomon's at night, I imagine, had to be spooky. So walking along the shoreline, right? You have the moon up above. You have all these oyster shells from the canneries. So that white light's reflecting off of it. It's kind of got like an eerie little light glow off these white oyster shells. And you have the bones bleached in the sun. So you see little pieces of people just kind of glowing as you walk by. So I can only imagine the atmosphere and just, it would have been spooky, unnerving. And so the two officers who followed these guys decided that they were going to gather up some of these bones and make it sort of look like an open grave. Well, they brought a sheet with them and they made it up to look like it was a woman kneeling over the grave of this man. So perhaps it was a widow who passed away who never knew what happened to her husband. You know, and she was there to remember him. And it started to drizzle. It's you know, kind of got a little gross. The clouds came over the moon. And these guys are like, all right, we'll just watch from the ship. So they rode back and they got a spyglass out. And they're watching the shoreline. Well, about midnight, the three sailors had a great time. They're a little tipsy. And now they've, so apparently they did find the alcohol. And they, count, they come around the corner and they see this figure on the beach kneeling over the bones of a long dead sailor and they they freak out they they kind of run towards their rowboat and one of them stops his name is thomas he stops and he pulls out a gun and says if it's anything to hurt us put your hands up and of course it doesn't respond it's a sheet <laughs> but he doesn't know that he thinks the real ghost there to get them <laughs> He repeats his command once more, and when he doesn't get a response, he gets kind of jittery and shoots into the air. And then with that, he's off. He runs into the boat. They row back furiously. It, the description is they rowed as if the phantom were chasing them across <laughs> the waves, which I can only imagine how funny that was for the two guys on the steamboat watching their comrades come back. Furiously, drunkenly. Like <laughs> rowing, back, row yeah, rowing back to your ship. And so they get aboard and, you know, they get back to their berths, don't tell anybody what happened. The next day, you know, they're, so, they're a little more sober. And then finally, the officers come over and explain what happened. And they're, they're probably laughing their butts off and just at the expense of these guys. And to make it even more hilarious, someone on the ship anonymously wrote a poem about the whole encounter <laughs> and published it in the newspaper to embarrass their friends. And this was in this, the... In the Baltimore Sun. <laughs> so imagine like a newspaper with distribution to like several states and all of a sudden your name is printed on there that you were scared of a ghost in Solomon's Marathon. <laughs> oh. Okay, so along with all of the documentation that Vincent gave me, he also provided the actual poem that was printed in the Baltimore Sun. And I wanted to read it to you guys really quickly, just because it's kind of fun. And I thought that it would be, it'd be unfortunate if you guys missed it. "'Twas in the midst of winter of the year 1904, the old St. Mary's couldn't make her run to Baltimore." 
Her gallant Captain Davis drove her here and drove her there, but all in vain, the ice and mountains plugged her everywhere. He turned about and sought a berth, which all wise captains know, that little wharf they call Drum Point, where strong winds never blow. The harbor looks as peaceful here as whiskey in a saucer, but truly here is little peace and very little losser. For, you must know, along the shore grim coffins strew the sand. Here you will see a dead man's foot, and there a dead man's hand. Therefore, should you parade the shore, you must use circumspection. Or you may tread upon the toes of ghosts who will take exception. The day I speak of, three brave youths set out on a flirtation. There is no record of what chanced while at their destination. For Solomon's they struck a pace along a corpse-strewn way. They started for it bravely. When they started, it was day. I'll tell you what their names are first. Tis proper they should shine. Examples to such timid folk with nerves like yours and mine. The first and bravest, I believe, was baptized simply Jim. Nor is it peradventure that his name will rhyme with Slim. Next, Tommy, but hereafter we must call him Thomas. Why? We all respect a fellow who can cape his face and lie. And last but not least of all, the youth who's Gurley's backer. Somebody told me he was called the bird that wants a cracker. Well, all good things must have an end. Their girling had an ending. And midnight was approaching fast as homeward they came trending. In silence and in Indian file, the trio were progressing, when suddenly there came a yell from Tommy, most distressing. Oh, ah, he cried, there it is, there it is, all knees began to quiver, and each man on his own account made beeline for the river. Tis, said Tommy, pulled a gun, to prove he was not frightened. The kind of proof will hardly go with people well enlightened. Thus each man swore he would not run from any ghosts or witches, but no man volunteered to prove what happened to the stitches. Okay, let's get back to Vincent. And, you know, to sort of tie it to the museum, um, we actually have a painting of the steamboat at one of the docks, so we know what it looks like. Um, and on the sides of all the steamboats, they had these huge decorative like emblems, so as to make it distinctive. So if you're sailing down the bay, you can't quite read the name. If you look at where the paddle box is, where the wheels are turning around, you could see that symbol and be like, oh, you know, that's the Emma Giles, that's the Dorchester, that's the St. Mary's. So St. Mary's had a huge golden eagle on each side. Um, and it actually ran aground off Benedict, and they were unable to get it off. And a fire started and burned the ship to the waterline. Um, one of these giant eagles fell off the side into the water and washed up on shore. A local farmer found it, thought, oh, that's kind of neat and brought it back and put it into his barn and kind of just left it there. He forgot about it. Um, and another gentleman later on said, came to the museum after it got established and said, hey, I have this you know, eagle from one of the steamboats in my barn. Do you want it? And of course, they're like, yes. Um, and so they brought it to the museum and it's not like restored, but it was cleaned up. They took the dirt off and the mold and whatever. Um, but you can still see like the wingtips are damaged from where it was sitting in the damp earth and kind of rotted out. But it's this emblem from the St. Mary's that had all these crazy stories associated with it and happened to just burn to the waterline. And now it's sitting in the Patuxent River somewhere. Wow. But we do have a piece of it at the museum. We do. So you can come see it. <laughs> right. Uh, but thank you so much for sharing all these folklore stories mm -hmm. with us.
That was awesome.